Hey everybody, welcome to the In The Know podcast. Uh, my name's David Stone and I'm joined as always by Susan Weber, uh, two folks from your financial institutions uh, team here at Barry Dunn and happy to be here and, and chatting with you all today. And, and Susan, don't know if you want to say a word or two. Just to let everybody know I'm here. Thanks, Dave. Uh, yeah, it's great to it's great to be here, David, with you as always. I always enjoy these conversations and and uh, ready to have another robust one today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But likewise, looking forward to it and hard to believe here we are, you know, cruising through the summer. Um, what, what summer we've had and you know, it's it's uh, as you like to say, Susan, never a dull moment in banking and never <laughs> um, that that still holds true today. <laughs> never a dull moment. Um, so what's first on on top of mind for you today, David? Yeah, so I think, you know, kind of as we always tend to kick these off with uh, the quarterly banking profile mm-hmm. summary. Um, we, we just recently issued our quarter one summary um, and really the the big topic of focus there is CECL adoption. Here we really? are. We've, Here. uh, we're, we're in it now, right? <laughs> we are in it now. Yeah. It, I thought it was great. You know, you and I had a conversation about these numbers the other day and, you know, let's just share a few of them here. So in the, in the, um, FDIC's quarterly banking profile, they give some insight into sort of that day one adjustment uh, for at least those uh, those community banks that adopted as of January of 2023. Yeah. Now, we know there's still some other adoptions happening throughout the rest of this calendar year, um, but the bulk of those, almost 4,000, almost 4,000 community banks adopted in January of 2023. And according to the data from the FDIC profile, um, you and I computed, you know, so basically an, an aggregate impact of about a 4.2% increase uh, for CECL adoption over their uh, 1231 allowance reserves, right? And of course, we know there's a broader story underneath those averages, right? Sure. Um, but at least on average, that means an impact of about plus 231,000 per institution. Now, we know that that range is much broader, even from our own personal experiences. We know that some entities, you know, released substantial parts of their reserve uh, at CECL adoption and others, you know, increased by quite a bit. Um, It'll be interesting to see what those details really, you know, come out at, at the rest of this year. You know, my suspicion is that it has an awful lot to do with how much of that pandemic uh, increase in allowances they they were individually holding on to that now yeah. they sort of can let go of. Um, and also certainly the types of models and the way that they've implemented adjustments, um, you know, as they've they've gone along. So I'm sure there's some technical aspects as well as just maybe how they were positioned coming into CECL that, that will factor into that range. But certainly interesting, at least from a benchmarking perspective for folks maybe to hear um, what some of those ranges looked like. Yeah, yeah, and just to provide a, a little further color, um, so that that day one adjustment and and the aggregate was nine hundred and twenty two million made by those you know mm-hmm. almost four thousand community banks as as you mentioned Susan, and um, you know as, as you're all probably well aware this adjustment has no impact to the P and L, no impact to the income statements, run through retained earnings. So that day one adjustment, um, again, in the aggregate was an increase to the ACL, um, but no impact to provision expense. That being said, kind of fast forwarding through quarter one. So that's just day one, just, Mm -hmm. you know, one, one adoption. That's the impact. 
fast forwarding through 331, um, provision expense actually decreased 17% mm-hmm. from, from the previous quarter. So Q4 mm-hmm. 22. That being said, though, it, it increased 164% from Q1 22, so a year ago. So kind of some differing stories there, you know, some <laughs> differing trends. And, and as you mentioned, Susan, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I know, um, I mean, you've been you've been in the weeds of Cecil <laughs> for, for years, you know, having adopted and then through the model validation efforts. Um, but, you know, our audit teams are starting to to kick the tires, so to speak, um, on these calculations. And uh, it's exciting. You know, it's exciting. There's been a lot mm-hmm. of anticipation. And I, I think a lot of people are just ready to to dive in and just kind of see what's what's under the hood of these calculations. And, uh, you know, I think um, we're, we're all still learning as we go. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't you just set it and forget it. Uh, it's going to be ever evolving. But but here we are. So it's, it's something that we're going to be tracking very closely uh, from quarter to quarter and um, look forward to continuing to provide some insights on on these trends. Great. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, just maybe one final thought on that is, uh, you know, just I think it's even a relief for banks in many ways, shapes or sure. form, right? It's been such a long runway coming that, you know, I was on a call yesterday. We were we were uh, working through a, a final uh, model validation, you know, exit. And, you know, um, one of the comments made uh, by the institution was, you know, it's just, it's great to finally be in it. We've been talking yeah. about it so long. It's, it's you know, for for all the pluses and minuses, it's great to finally be in it. So I think, I think the next year, two, three, going to be a really... Um, a really good learning time for everybody, for sure. Um, so, you know, Dave, we're at that part um, of the year where, you know, midway through where we really want to start thinking about, you know, what is the rest of the year? And and everybody keeps talking a little bit about recession, recession's mm-hmm. coming. And um, I was talking with some folks the other day and they were talking about the yield curve and, you know, how, how inverted it's been. And so, uh, you know, I, it's funny. I, I really don't want to talk about yield curve inversion <laughs> anymore, um, but I do think that maybe maybe it would be good to kind of touch on that a little bit. And so, you know, I think when people are talking about yield curve inversion, they're really talking about the spread between two and ten year treasuries. And you know, we saw a lot of uh, publicity on this last uh, month or so about you know it's really been the deepest inversion since 1981. I know um, there have been uh, lots of conversations around that. And so, kind of, what's the big deal? Well, in the shorter in the shorter dated treasuries, when they trade higher at higher yields than the longer dated securities, that has been a reliable signal of upcoming recessions, right? So that two ten that two slash ten year yield curve. Uh, has inverted about six to 24 months before each recession since yeah. about 1955. So it's been a pretty good indicator. Um, and so, you know, that is really why a lot of people are watching it. Um, and the spread between the two and 10 year treasuries has really been inverted since about last July. So a good year yeah. Um, yeah. at least. And so, you know, it is something that, uh, that gets a lot of talk time or reference time to, you know, we, I seem, I feel like we're still waiting and waiting and waiting, you know, for this recession to come. Um, but I do think that, you know, most folks are still skeptical about, you know, the second half of this year and starting to see some weaknesses. I, I don't know if you're hearing any more on that yourself, but would love to hear from you on that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And in, in regards to the, you know, upcoming recession, 
Um, I, I've heard, you know, economists still kind of say, you know, maybe Q4 of this year mm-hmm. planning for a recession. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I always tell people I'll I'll, I'll tell you better. Uh, Q1 2024, right? You're you know. a true economist, David. You're a true <laughs> economist. <laughs> We're really yeah. good at saying what just happened. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I throw it out there for what it's worth. That's that's just what the commentary I've heard. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've also heard that story about the yield curve inversion kind of being a good indicator of recessions. But like you said, you know, it's been inverted since last July. So here yeah. we are, you know, going on or, or even past a year of yield curve inversion. Recession hasn't come yet. Doesn't mean it's not going to. But, yeah. you know, I, I think, again, there's a lot of anticipation building up there as yeah. well. We're going to get a recession at some point, but what what's it going to look like? You know, what's right. going to be the driving force of that recession? What industries are going to be most impacted? And I know we're going to talk later in this session about, um, commercial real estate, you mm-hmm. know, and, and kind of what's bubbling up there as well. So, yeah. you know, just a lot of forces at play right now. A lot. Yeah. And, you know, again, you know, there really isn't um, a standard time, you know, like from the, there's not a standard measurement of when it becomes inverted to when the recession start, you know, that yeah. range is pretty broad, six to 24 months, right? Yeah. So at 12, we're kind of right in the midway part of the long range of that window. So, exactly. um, you know, any time now, really, I guess, is what <laughs> the, the record would show. But anyway, um, so what's happening in the accounting world these days, David? I think there have been some new pronouncements. Yeah, yeah, not I mean nothing too earth-shattering. I mean, you got to remember we're we're still in the shadows of of Cecil and, and mm-hmm. the lease standards. So, those were and, and I should mention revenue recognition as well. Um, you know, those were monumental accounting changes. So, mm-hmm. nothing to that extent, but still some stuff worth mentioning um that's been recently issued. Um, so it, you know, I'll mention there there was a another accounting standard issued regarding leases, um, specifically common control arrangements, and just how to account for the terms and conditions in those arrangements. And um, maybe more meaningful for our financial institutions, how to account for leasehold improvements uh, in common control arrangements. And then another ASU that I want to bring attention to it's ASU number 2023-02. And this is really an extension of ASU number 2014-01 that some of you may recall um, created the proportional amortization method. And when that method was created for, for uh, tax equity investments, it had a very limited uh, purpose. It, it could only be used for low-income housing tax credit structures. So since 2014-01 was issued, you know, there's been a lot of, um, you know, users out there just saying, well, why such a limited application? You know, why can we only use the proportional amortization method for low income housing tax credit structures? So the the FASB listened, um, hence this ASU, which really expands the availability of the proportional amortization method to any tax equity investment if it meets certain criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely seen as a, as a positive change and, and something that we're monitoring with our clients just to see if it makes sense um, to possibly even early adopt this ASU. Great. 
So, uh, so still some some pronouncements coming out. So, uh, you know, something <laughs> other than Cecil. That's good to yeah. know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. I mean, the the FASB never stops. You know, they have a lot of um, you know exposure drafts out there as well. One actually on um, acquired financial assets as well mm -hmm. which pcd we, we, right purchase it, credit it, deteriorated yep exactly and, and essentially eliminating the pcd versus non-pcd model so that's something we're thank goodness we're, yeah it's something we're closely <laughs> watching <laughs> i believe the common period ends for that exposure draft in august so you know i would expect there to be some more mm -hmm. commentary on that draft um relatively shortly and, and hopefully a final um, ASU issued relatively shortly as well. So when that does go final, we'll, we'll certainly be, um, you know, letting everybody know about sure. that ASU. Well, and it's not uh, not related to an ASU, but since you brought up sort of exposure draft and comment period, maybe something to mention here too, that there is a comment uh, period out there right now for um, the excess deposit insurance exemption. Yes, and, that's right. You know, some of our some of our folks here, uh, some of our listeners here, might want to engage in that discussion. I know a lot of the associations are encouraging uh, banks to weigh in on this and really be supportive of the exemption for smaller institutions not to pay as much, you know, not to pay anything or as much into um, the additional deposit insurance uh, levy, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and that additional deposit insurance that that came about as as a result mm -hmm. of the, the recent bank failures as well, right? That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. So yeah. um, having to sort of uh, refresh what's in the uh, insurance coffers, if you will, <laughs> for, <laughs> for those types of situations. Yeah. And yeah, understandably, the smaller institutions are, are hesitant to want to have to pay up for something sure. that they really don't actively, uh, you know, participate in from a risk perspective. Yeah. So yeah. certainly, certainly want to make sure that people are aware that that comment is open now. And, you know, if they want to engage in that discussion, they really should. Yeah. And um, but before we change topics, you know, just wanted sure. to mention that recently issued accounting pronouncements. Oh, yeah. I just went over, you know, we have that in summary form as well as the quarterly banking profile summary. Mm -hmm. You know, we just issued that via our uh, quarterly insights, which is an email newsletter. Um, and those are both available on our uh, website, Barry Dunn's website as well, if you missed that that email. So certainly check them out. You know, they're great resources to have, great materials to provide to, to boards, audit committees even. Um, so, you know, use them as you see fit. That's what they're there for. Uh, and one thing we may, maybe that's an opportunity for us to maybe link the location to this podcast description, because sure. when you do find it on our website, you're able to subscribe to the newsletter, I believe also right there. So people yep, could start point. getting it anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I think we both have the same thoughts. Susan. <laughs> I think we did. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I think we have to talk about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's 1071 oh, rule boy. that, you know, I've started to see some commentary on. And Susan, I know you've been saying uh, abreast of this rule. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to provide a, a quick summary for our listeners today. Sure. Well, I'll provide a little bit. I mean, this this has really been tagged as one of the largest data gathering events since Humda, probably, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody yeah. on the call right now, you know, any anybody listening to the podcast right now is 
is breathing more shallowly <laughs> as, <laughs> as, we've, as we've talked about this. Um, yeah. it, it is a fair lending enforcement rule. Um, the final rule was issued, I believe it was March 30th of this year. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, I've been at some conferences where the chatter has been around, you know, what has Dodd-Frank really cost us in terms of increased loan costs? And the estimate in general so far is about 16% increase. And the expectation is that the CFPB 1071 rule is probably going to increase at another 2 to 3%. So it is not an insignificant um, exercise. And I, I think institutions who may not qualify immediately this year need to know that this is a rolling ongoing requirement. So the concept is that even though the initial compliance, uh, you know, who has to comply is being measured off of 2022 and 2023 data, the, the, the general rule is originations of 100 covered transactions for two years, right? So there's a consistency of 100 covered transactions. It's not yeah. just I had a one-year blip and so I qualify and the next year I'm out of the mix. It's not like that. Once you qualify, you're in it. Right, so it's two consecutive years of 100 covered transactions, um, and so that's on a rolling basis go forward. So if you don't qualify this year based on 22 and 23, you your next measurement period is 23, 24, and then 24 and 25, and then 25 and 26. You know what I'm saying? So it's sure. it's now forever a two year rolling. So if you don't qualify now, it's not a once or done. You are going to have to stay on top and measure and monitor this going forward. Right. And you, you'll need to know when you, you qualify and when you need to comply. Um, what doesn't count are additional requests for existing loans. Right. So like lines of credit increases. So they wouldn't be part of that hundred covered transactions. But if people aren't familiar with 1071, they think, oh, that doesn't pertain to me. You need to engage. Right. You need to be really involved and educated in what the requirements are. And you need to start thinking about your processes for complying, how you would do it. Um, very much recommend that you start testing some of that so that you understand the ease with which. The good news is if you're an institution that's using sort of an um, an automated uh, loan origination system or you've got a platform, many of the providers are trying to figure out and may already have mm -hmm. introduced um, upgrades to their software and their processes that allow you to capture that data as you go. And so you may be, um, you know, compliance with uh, 1071 may already be a foregone conclusion. If you are using those, you might have to pay a little bit more for the service, but, um, you know, that depends on provider. Um, but the big message and takeaway here is I think it's really important that entities really understand what the requirements are and understand that it's a rolling basis ongoing. So yeah, you may not yeah. qualify today, but next year you might, or the year after you might, and you need to be ready. Um, wondering about your thoughts on it though too, David, because I know you've been doing a lot of, of um, research and conversations around this as well. Yeah, no, I think, I think you nailed it, Susan. You know, those are, those are great points. And I guess I'll just emphasize, you know, start that conversation now with your mm -hmm. vendors, um, core providers, loan origination software providers, um, it's not too early to start that conversation. Just see what what's their solution. Um, what how do they plan to confront 1071? Um, and make sure that that aligns with your institution's approach, you know, as well. So, you know, by starting that conversation now, being proactive, it's just going to set you up for success when when the date um, comes uh, where you have to go live with this. Exactly. 
So, so Susan, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier commercial real estate. So I mm. figured what better topic to, to end on, right? <laughs> commercial real estate. <laughs> and, <it>. um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I believe we chatted about this in our, our last podcast too. And, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's still gaining attention, maybe even more attention mm-hmm. than when we last chatted and have, have a couple stats that I want to throw out just to kind of okay. prime the conversation. Um, you know, there, there seems to be some, some more turbulence in the commercial mm-hmm. real estate sector. Um, and to back that up, you know, uh, commercial mortgage backed securities have, um, you know, defaults or unpaid principal balances, I should say, have increased from a year ago as of June. So, you know, last June, uh, you know, unpaid principal was around 5.5 billion. It's up mm-hmm. to 12.7 billion as of this mm-hmm. June. So a fairly sig- significant increase year over year. Um, so kind of supporting that trend of of kind of more turbulence in this area and, mm-hmm. and further exacerbating that, um, you know, TREP, a, a real estate data provider that, that we've certainly quoted before, um, has come out and said that there's around 20 billion of office commercial mm-hmm. mortgage-backed security loans that are maturing this year in 2023. That's so, kind of some forces here that seem as if it could be a perfect storm. Yep. Um, but uh, don't don't know what else you have to add to that, Susan. Sure. Well, you know, there are a lot of sources that we're continuing to monitor and watch, and you've you've mentioned several of them here on the call, and TREP is certainly one that we take a look at. You know, I think um, people have been sort of resting a little bit easy because they're feeling like, well, a lot of that risk, a lot of the bulk of that risk that often gets into those numbers nationally is really being driven by, you know, high metro areas. And so they feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect with maybe what they're seeing. But we yeah. are starting to hear um, from others in the region that they are starting to see some of this pressure manifest itself, right? So whether it's um, lease rollover risk, um, Mm. you know, I think the concern with some of the TREP data is, are we going to kick the can down the road, right? You know, there's there's these maturities that you've got to deal with. So do you sort of kick the can down the road and hope that they get through it? Or is there really something there to be, you know, to be dealt with? And, um, you know, making sure that people are are being really... um, disciplined about dealing with Mm. that, uh, about assessing it and dealing with it. And I think, but what we're also starting to see, um, you know, the special servicing rate jumped up in June, um, not only for office, but also mixed use and multifamily. And so we're starting to see some other areas of pressure. Um, You know, I think, you know, there are going to be some operators who are just flat out tired of dealing with all this, right? And I don't know that we really anticipated in a time where uh, real estate values have definitely been climbing and climbing and climbing. I I don't know that, you know, anyone in the banking industry necessarily thought that people would necessarily walk away from these properties. But, you know, there may come a time where, where that's a risk too. So I think really, um, just want to keep beating that drum of, you know, getting in there into these pockets of Cree. And, you know, by the way, tying this back to Cecil, which you know <laughs> I love to do, you know, doing so may give you some data points to help you 
um, anchor, a qualitative adjustment for the things that you're worried about, right? You know, this this piece of, of Cree realist, you know, the Cree uh, has really been a conversation lately um, across many institutions that I've talked to around the nation where they're just a little uncomfortable with what could come out here. And you do have the ability to make some good adjustments um, if you feel that your model's not capturing this element of, of risk that's involved there. And so some of these sources uh, give you some good justification for some of that. It's just being thoughtful about the way you construct it. So, um, you know, I, I think the other thing I might mention here is, you know, there's been a lot of um, publicity about some major retailers uh, shuttering locations around the nation. And in certain regions, it's being felt, you know, more so than others. You know, I'm thinking about... Um, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond, uh, the Christmas tree shop, you know, and others mm. where there's probably residual risk, right? You yeah, know, there have sure. been smaller, you know, office or retail shops that have cropped up around those that sort of benefit from from those large anchor stores being there. And we've certainly seen the ebb and flow of that in, in mall situations around the country before, um, some of which have never recovered, right? Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, I think there's some new elements that people really need to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah, well well said. And I, I know, um, you know, the, the response to date has been maybe, as you said, kicking the can down the road. It's really been um, bank strategy has been to just slow these defaults, you know, through yeah. loan modifications. And one thing I'll mention there from the accounting perspective is mm. just to, to be um, cognizant of the new loan modification rules that are out there. Sure, TDR, Trouble Debt Restructuring Accounting, is no longer, um, but, you know, you mm -hmm. still need to assess if that loan modification results in a new loan to the borrower or if it's really truly just an extension of that existing loan. So that's yeah. the accounting piece. But then maybe even more important, the disclosure piece, mm -hmm. um, you know, having to disclose those loan modifications to borrowers experiencing financial difficulty. That's a key distinction there. Um, you know, making sure that you're including those loans in your financial statement disclosures will be key um, as we as we come up on on the next reporting cycle. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, every every financial institution's culture is just slightly different from the next, you know, but one thing I would say is, you know, having kind of um, grown up on the credit risk side, you know, through the TDR fervor, um, you know, TDRs weren't always looked upon as good things, right? You know, sure. I think there is a hesitancy because there was sort of this once a TDR, always a TDR kind of stigma that you had this bucket of impairment that that just followed you everywhere, sort of this cloud, you know, and I think a lot of people hesitated to really want to introduce TDRs into the mix as a result. It was sort of a you know, kind of a, it just felt like a penalty in a way, although I don't think that was really the, ever the intention. Yeah. Um, I think what's good about these new loan modification guidelines is it's not a once and always, right? I mean, you're tracking it for, you're, you're disclosing it and you're tracking it for essentially 12 months and then, then it falls off the radar, you know, in a way, you know, you're not disclosing it in the same way. And so, you know, I think, I think that just hopefully will remove kind of that stigma and have banks really deal with things that they need to, they really need and want to deal with. Yeah. Um, recognizing they still may need to disclose it and discuss it, of course, you know, depending on the scenario and situation. But, you know, there's, there's really not a stigma in this so much as it's just, you know, making sure that you're um, being able to identify them and, and disclose them correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed.
Um, well, Susan, thanks as always. You know, <laughs> this was a great conversation. I, I always look forward to having these conversations and hopefully our listeners do too. Um, you know, certainly if there's any questions that have arisen as a result of these conversations, you know, reach out to Susan or I or use our Ask the Advisor feature on the Very Done website. Always happy to continue the conversation. But for now, I think that's it for this In the Know podcast. And we'll look forward to chatting with you all again. Thank you. Thank you.